0: with confidence in our
1: armed forces with the unbounding determination of our people we will gain the inevitable triumph So help
0: us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get to it. Our guest is a retired U.S. Army Sergeant First Class who served in the Persian Gulf and Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm in 1990 and 91. She was part of a tactical water distribution system detachment that was utilized as a forward water point. Her decorations include the Army Achievement Medal, the Army Commendation Medal, National Defense Service Medal with STAR, Global War on Terrorism Service Medal, Armed Forces Reserve Medal, Humanitarian Service Medal, NCO Professional Development Ribbon, Army Service Ribbon, two Kuwait Liberation Medals, Driver Mechanic Badge, Ohio Commendation Medal, and Ohio Distinguished Service Medal. From Reynoldsburg, Ohio, Angela Belts, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you. So just tell us a little bit about yourself, Angela, what you're doing these days, your family, your career, activities, organizations, and that kind of thing.
1: Um, as you said, I live in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. Um, I am married to my husband, uh, Daryl, and we have two sons, uh, Wyatt and Garrett. We've been in Reynoldsburg since my husband graduated in uh, 1996 from The Ohio University, not The Ohio State University. He's a Bobcat, so we're Bobcats fans.
0: So that's the real O H I O, right?
1: That, that's right. So, um, anyway. Uh, once I retired from the Army National Guard, I started working uh, for Defense Finance and Accounting Services, which is DFAS, uh, Columbus at the base uh, DSCC. I started out as a um, accounting technician, worked my way up to a financial management analyst, did that, and then eventually became a supervisor. I had a, a vendor pay branch. Um, I worked. Uh, I had an Army Caps W team, which is an old legacy system, as well as an Air Force legacy system called IAPS. Um, I really enjoyed that time of my life. Uh, did that for about 15 months and then needed a break from supervision. So I um, applied for and got a personnel type job, which is one of the other things that I did in the military. So I just started that recently. So.
0: and So you were born and raised in the Dakotas and you actually lived on a tribal reservation, the Spirit Lake Nation in Northeast North Dakota along Devils Lake. What was reservation life like?
1: Back when I was growing up, we actually moved there. So I was born in South Dakota. My dad is from the Stefan... South Dakota area, which is central South Dakota. And he met my mom, my mom was attending an all Indian Catholic boarding school down in Stefan. And so that's how he met my mom. And we always joke and say they played cowboys and Indians. And that's where we came from. So um, but during when I was in the fourth grade, we then moved to um, end of fourth grade, we moved to North Dakota. So um, where my mom's family was, she moved home to help take care of her parents who were not doing well. So half my life, South Dakota, the other half of my young life North Dakota so back then it was you know it was kind of um, an ideal kind of childhood you know we used to ride bike down the road and you know ride horse in the ditch you know we just it was a pretty good childhood in my opinion um up until like around when I got in high school and then things started changing um like with some of the outside influences um unfortunately we didn't end up getting a casino on our reservation and despite what a lot of people think that's not a good thing it brings in a lot of outside influences that aren't good and so when I was in high school you know that's why I decided to join the military I kind of wanted to get out of there and um, see what else was out you know outside of there
0: yeah and this actually brings us to our next question it's 1986 and that's when you actually signed up for the North Dakota Army National Guard you weren't even a senior in high school yet was it the life on the reservation that sort of prompted you to join or, wh- or what was it that prompted um, you to join? It was
1: kind of a combination. I come from a family of, of ranching people and uh, that's a hard life to be a rancher and um, have cattle and, you know, I'm very proud of all of them. Um, but it's a rough life and I that's just something I wasn't interested in doing. Uh, so that that along with, you know, Leaving the reservation and and, and getting out of the small areas and and trying to travel and see some things is really what prompted me that. And also, um, I wanted to find a way to pay for college.
0: Well, What was basic training like for you as a female?
1: Well, back then uh, in 1986, I went to Fort Dix, New Jersey. Uh, It was still segregated then. I guess before that, they had tried some co-ed basic training, but when I went, um, it was segregated, so it was an all-female company. Um, I was 17 years old. I was the youngest one there, and the oldest person was, like, 28. And so it was interesting because they I was small, so they weren't really sure if I was going to make it. So I had this one drill sergeant. I'll never forget him, Drill Sergeant Butler. He picked on me. Every time he saw me, he made me do push-ups. Like, we'd go from... Three blocks to march to our chow hall, and we would start out, and we're marching, and he'd say, "King, drop!" And I'd, so I'd, you know, draw and run off to the side, start doing push-ups, and I'd ask to recover. He'd let me recover. I'd run to catch up, get back in my spot, and then he'd make me drop again. So that was every day. He kept. I mean, it, I hated going to eat because if he was marching us, because I was guaranteed at least 100 push-ups that three block you know radius in between all these droppings so but um it was good uh i enjoyed it uh luckily i was very athletic when i was young and so when I went, you know, I got a 292 on my PT test out of 300, you know, the only thing wow. I missed was my sit-ups, but I could outrun just about anybody. I could do more push-ups. I had a lot I'd of, I'd imagine you could training. do more
0: push-ups than <laughs> that, at that point. Well,
1: even reporting I could. So, you know, I don't know why he thought, I guess, cause I was so young, but he was, you know, towards the end of basic training, you know, we were lucky enough. We had did our road march out to the field and we're coming back and, um, we had a chance to make fun of our drill sergeants. They let us like, you know, cause we're almost done, you know? So one of the things was, he's like, I know you got something to say to me. And I'm like, yeah, why did you pick on me so much? Like, why were you always like, every time I turned around, you were hollering at me to drop and do pushups. He said, cause I didn't know if you were going to make it. He said, so I had to make sure that you made it he said you were the first 17 year old i've ever seen come through basic training here he said so i wanted to make sure you made it wow. so he wasn't doing it just to be nasty he just was training me
0: have you talked to him since then at oh, all no i
1: never saw any of them again
0: so you get back to school for your senior year your classmates are getting ready for prom focusing on things high school kids focus on that wasn't your focus what was your focus
1: Well, um, I actually had, when I first came back, um, my first experience was the homecoming weekend and everybody was so worried about what they were going to wear and, you know, their hair and everything. And I was like, seriously, like I have just been through... U.S. Army basic training, like I, I was just happy not to have to march somewhere. You know, I was happy, you know, not to stink like everybody else. You know, I. It's just, it was a great experience, but it made me. It really changed me because I, I grew up a lot, and things that were big deals before were certainly not a big deal anymore. And then um, I had decided that I wanted to go active duty, and unfortunately, they weren't going to release me. Um, The National Guard, because if they did, then, you know, they paid for all that training for nothing. So I decided, well, if I switch branches and go active. So I thought about going to the Marines, but that didn't work out. So I ended up back in the Guard. And then I went to um, my advanced individual training in 1988. End of 87, beginning of 88. And I went to petroleum uh, refueling school. I was a 77 Foxtrot. Now I believe it's a 92 Fox. They change the names and numbers every now and again. So I was a refueler. Um, that was a really interesting job. Um, but they had trained us. We, we use the same equipment that they do for water um, as far as the pumps and the equipment equipment other than testing and I was water distribution so you know we used the the 600 gallon per minute pumps and then we had the 10 mile hose line they then uh, I was in an, in an actually in a water unit, so that's why we did the refueling training. So, but I could I still had that MOS as refueler. So,
0: and so that's that's what you end up doing when the Gulf War started. And let's fast forward a little bit. It's 1990, fall of 1990. The Gulf War had just started, in early August. When did you actually head overseas? And what was your rule there? Was it part of this uh, outfit?
1: Yes. So I was with the 134th quartermaster detachment and there, I believe there was 26 of us and the majority of us had all went to high school together. And we had, I want to say, three E6s. We didn't have any officers with us, which was weird. And they were all, you know, like my parents' age. Um, But other than that, we were all just kids. Um, My cousin was in that unit. He was 18, going on 19, Um, my cousin Sean. And then, you know, a couple of my classmates. And then just, like I said, we all basically grew up together. So it was really kind of weird. It was like this, you know, the Brady Bunch going to (laughs) war, you know. And we were all these kids with these. I felt bad for our our three e sixes because I don't think they had any idea what they were in for because we fought like siblings you know we 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 trained well together and we worked hard but we also had you know some of the sibling stuff that went on because we were so young. Um,
0: Did you think being so young that oh my gosh here we go more push ups?
1: I wasn't sure what to think because it had been thirty two years since uh, the National Guard had been immobilized in North Dakota and who would have ever thought, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. And, you know, sometimes you get this whole conspiracy theory, you know, comes into play and you think, oh, you know, I wonder if they knew about this before, you know, because our battalion um, for two years in a row, we had went out to Camp Pendleton, California to train and we were training, up in these mountains, you know, up in this, you know, really hot climate and all this stuff and running hose lines, you know, and the, our water purification unit was purifying water, you know, they were setting up the bag farms, we were doing everything that we would eventually be doing, you know, in 1990, which is weird, you know, so it it makes you kind of think, hey, did they know something was going on over there then? Because why would they send this National Guard unit, a whole battalion of us out to California for two years in a row? So it was interesting.
0: Scud missiles. I am sure they were scary enough, but chemical alerts, they were a big concern and you had to deal with what was called MOP4, meaning mission-oriented protective posture, level four. That's all protection had to be worn, suit, boots, mask, gloves. How often were those alerts?
1: We didn't get too many of those until I want to say we moved closer to the border. So once we got out of the um we were one of the first units to deploy out of Fort McCoy Wisconsin which turned into a big mobilization station and we were one of the first water units to head over there and so when we got there there was so it was part of the initial huge build up so there were so many people coming in that they weren't really sure where people were going to go I mean it was it was kind of controlled chaos and they took us out to this cement city, which was like this holding area for that you would, you know, sit there and, you know, climatize. They're trying to get you used to this crazy heat and um, so you don't fall out, you know, heat injuries and stuff. So we kind of, I think we were there for like seven days. And then our E6s were. The guy that was in charge of us, Staff Sergeant Benson, I mean, he was awesome. He went and found us a job. He's like, you know what? We're not going to sit here. We need something to do. And luckily, we were one of the few units that flew with our vehicles. So we had, uh, I think it was three pickup truck type vehicles and then two five tons and we flew over on c141s with our equipment in the middle so we had the nice little red jump seats and you know there was no 747 for us we flew with our equipment um, but it was very fortunate because we did have our equipment he could do that so our first 30 days after those initial seventies, days um, we spent at Half Moon Bay, on the Persian Gulf, learning how to purify water, which w- most of we had never done because we didn 't go to school for that. We went to school for the distribution p- part of it, and we 're all fuel, but it was kind of cool because you know we learned how to purify water, we got to swim i mean we 're living like on the Persian Gulf, you know on this in this intense of course, um, but then after that, he found us a new job, and we moved out into the middle of the desert um, where they set up a staging area and So it was almost like, you know, it was very ideal, you know, until the air war started, really, because then we all moved up to the border. So it was after we moved up to the border that it was more of a concern, because before that, we were so far away from um, the port. We were out, you know, um, so we We weren't worried about the, the missiles as much there. When we were out in the middle of the desert, we weren't really worried about them because there wasn't anything, nobody knew we were out there really. But then when we moved up to the border is when they were a lot more common for us. And um, the way they would tell you that there was a, a Scud missile nearby or whatever, it's like three horn honks. And, or, you know, it's the, you know, if you hear the horn honk, you are grabbing your stuff because, you know, you're trying to put your your gear on because you know that there's a missile flying over or in the vicinity. And we had, and they, they couldn't aim very well, you know, obviously. So we never knew where they were going to fall or hit. So it was it was really kind of scary and for a long time after coming home if somebody honked a horn you were like you're waiting for those other two you're getting in mop four yeah position. and you don't have any and you're like oh my god where's my stuff you know so well
0: and you had an instance that was a chemical plant had been bombed and the wind was blowing the chemicals your way
1: mm-hmm.
0: what happened and how long did you have to stay in mop four in that situation um,
1: it was it was in january sometime um during when the air war campaign was still going before any ground forces had went in and I forgive me I don't remember the dates but the chemical alarms went off and they kept going off and so like it was like a couple days that we were pretty much in mop four all the time because we the alarms were still going off and then then it was more sporadic they'd go off you know they'd turn off and then you know they'd test and they'd say oh well it's not much you know so at one point then they said you know what it's not enough to hurt you so go ahead and remove your gear and then we didn't have to do that anymore but time they were launching the missiles depending on where they were coming from we seemed to unfortunately be in that path where they were going over top of us or something so we would end up in mop four for a time and then you'd take it off but it was interesting because inside they were lined with charcoal and so we were all you know black and dirty and you know ruined your uniforms and you know that's a big deal you want your uniforms to look good even if you're you know whatever but we had those desert print so the camouflage so it was kind of interesting trying to wash those by hand and get that out because we did our own laundry by hand (laughs) so
0: So you're a woman, you're in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia isn't exactly known for its pro-equality stance, even still today. Even driving then was a no-no. How did you get around that and really just being a woman in a war zone in general, how did you deal with that?
1: When we first got there, we left, I believe it was September 15th, I believe, when we got into country. Of 90. And um, when we first got there, we weren't allowed to drive. And I, you know, I drove a lot. I was one of the ones that was, you know, it was a stick shift and I was really good at it because I grew up driving those, you know, around home, you know, the farm type stuff. But um, they wouldn't let us drive. So eventually, the king declared the military women from all the different countries as men so that we could drive. But it was very unusual for them to see a female driving. Granted, we had usually had our, you know, a hat of some, you know, either a boonie hat or a Kevlar on when we were driving. You would see the strange looks of people that were, you know, you would meet them. Or if you were sitting there, you know, and you were a female and you were driving, they're just like, oh, my gosh, you know, what is this woman doing driving, you know? Some of the police and the border people weren't real happy to have us there as far as females I had a tendency to to really look down upon us and, you know, think of American women as being loose and, you know, corrupt and, you know, and they, and they had made no bones about it. They'd tell you about it or, you know, try to get a hug in or get too close to you or something, because I think they felt that we weren't um, proper women. We didn't have a whole lot of interaction with the actual Saudi people. We didn't see a lot of them. I think most of them like don't really do like the labor stuff over there. It didn't appear so. Um, most of the people that we talked to were from other countries. Um, you know that were driving our buses if we got a chance to ride on a bus or, you know, went into some kind of um, facility and you know. But it, it didn't seem like we didn't have a whole lot of interaction. But there was one. at interesting interaction that I had had when we were out at it was called Camp Pulaski the place where we were at out in the middle of nowhere and um, we had taken a trip back to port to pick up some stuff it was either to do a mail run or take our sergeant down to to some meetings and it was very interesting because we had stopped at this rest stop and um, to switch drivers and there was a man who asked if his wife could speak with us and there was two of us females and then our sergeant was with us and his he had lived in Madison, Wisconsin. He attended the University of Wisconsin. And um, his one wife had went with him, and one of their children was born there. So he was actually a dual citizen. And so he asked if we would want to speak with her. And so we got to talk to her, and then um, her mother and then two other women came up, which I don't know if they were his other wives or not, but it was... It was neat to be able he he let them talk to us, and so it was really neat to have a conversation with them and we got to talk to the little boy and they were taking pictures with us, and you know because they were so excited because and the little boy kept saying i 'm an American you know and it was really neat, he was so proud, and um, he actually wanted. Um, one of the flag patches off the uniforms that we had. And so I gave him mine, I cut it off and gave it to him. And he was really excited because he said, see mom, I'm an American. He said, you have to put this on my shirt. And, <laughs> you know, but he spoke English, you know, and, and they all spoke very good English. So it was it was kind of neat. But then on the flip side, I also saw driving down the road one time, there was this little Toyota truck and this guy was driving his son was in the back and it was like these little Nissan King cabs that they had a lot of these little white pickup trucks. And in the little club part were two goats. And in the back is his wife with the groceries. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like the goat is like (laughs) ahead of her sitting in the back. So it was like, and I don't know what the deal was. Maybe the goat jumped out. I, you know, I don't know, but it was like, seriously. But a lot of them, they did not want their women talking to us at all, or being around us, because we were not, like I said, they had a tendency to tell us that we were of not good character. So, so
0: the one who actually was had the dual citizenship was his wife. Was she talkative? Did oh, she talk to you?
1: Absolutely, because she, she had attended uni- the university as well.
0: Okay, so she, she had she some American American experiences yeah. too. There. Oh
1: yes, yeah. She lived here. Like I said, she lived here with him, and that's where that. Their, one of their sons was born. So it was neat because she knew what it was like here. She knew that we weren't bad people, bad women, you know? <laughs> so,
0: Even if you're driving, whatever. That's still... right. That's right. So how long did you stay there? When did you come back to the States?
1: Uh, we were there for six months. Uh, we, um, since our unit was one of the first units that deployed over there, we were handpicked to come home and take part in this ticker tape parade that they were having in New York City. But it didn't work out. So there was a plane full of us. We had a we had a Navy SEAL team. There was us. There was a group from the Big Red One out of Fort Riley, Kansas, and a couple other units. Somebody, I don't remember where the other two uh, units were from because we were the first, some of the first to get there. Well, lo and behold, our plane—we flew, we were flying home on a C-141 again, and our plane had developed a fuel leak, so we had to land at Loring Air Force Base, which is up in Limestone, Maine, uh, and. Wait for them for about I think it was like six or seven hours for them to dig a plane out of the snowbank for us to get out of there. So lo and behold, we missed the parade. um, But we did get to still come home earlier than some of the other people. So that was in March beginning of March and then we went uh, back to uh, Fort McCoy and we were very fortunate since we were the first North Dakota unit to go um, the National Guard you know they take good care of their people it doesn't matter what state you're in uh, the guard does a really good job and they sent uh, C-130 to come pick us up because there was only 24 of us so we could all yeah so we got to uh, fly home instead of riding buses back so it was pretty neat we got the star treatment for sure.
0: Well, you made it through the experience of being overseas, barely, that is, with the airplane and the leaking fuel. (laughs) Somehow you end up in a battalion that once was a combat arms unit, and you were one of the first females in that unit. How and when did you end up there, and what was that experience like?
1: When I came to Ohio, I had met my husband overseas during Desert Storm, and when I came to Ohio, I originally wanted to be in a unit that had been in Desert Storm because There were a lot of mobilizations, but there were a lot of units that weren't real happy because they didn't get to go. And so nobody in the guard hardly had the combat patch. And that was a big deal. So I wanted a unit that had been deployed when I Transferred here, so I first went to the 5694th Firefighter Detachment, and it was in Shreve, Ohio, and I reclassified to admin, so I was a unit clerk, and um, then. But I had to drive from Athens to Shreve, you know, once a month. My husband was in the reserves um, in Akron, Ohio. He's he was field artillery, so we would have to go up two weekends a month. It seemed like up to Orville to my in laws to stay, so that we could do our drill, and so. Once we got married, um, we decided uh, to join the 2nd uh, of, of the 174th Hawk Missile Battalion, which they stood up in McConnellsville, Ohio which is southeastern Ohio, and it was only an hour from Athens, and it made sense. Uh, They had just opened it up to females, and so I went back to being a refueler, and I went to one of the line batteries, uh, Charlie Battery, first to fire Hua. We were one of the best batteries, so that'll probably irritate some people, but we were the best. So um, anyway, uh, it was interesting, my first couple of drills, because... As a ref- I was an admin and I wasn't a medic and I wasn't, you know, a cook. So they weren't really sure, you know, how to deal with me because they were like, oh, my gosh, first of all, she's like five foot nothing. She's short. She's little. And we had these brand new shiny five ton vehicles, which were state of the art, top notch like 60 miles on them because they had just came off the railhead in Marietta when this unit stood up. And I was so excited to have this truck because it was automatic. It had a central inflatable tire system, you know, where the you can change the air pressure in the tires depending on your terrain. I mean, I was so stoked to have this vehicle. And so the first time they handed me my logbook and they said, well, you need to go PMCS, you know, check out your vehicle, and you need to check everything, you know, including the tank and pump unit on the back. So they were all kind of sitting there, and I could see them watching me because I knew they weren't quite sure how I was going to get the hood open. Because I'm five foot tall, the tires are like three and a half feet tall. You know, the I had to jump up to get the T bar. The the I hate to, it's hard to explain, but the hoods are very large, and you have to get up and get this T bar and then pull the hood open and then it comes open and then you lock it into place so the way I would do it is I would get that t-bar loose and then I would grab a hold of the t-bar and I'd put my two front feet on the bumper and then I'd use my legs you know so I went using my back to open the hood and once I did that and then I could hear one of them going holy cow what do you think she's gonna ask us for help and the other one's like no no she's not gonna like, well I don't know you know so it took me like an hour and a half and I went through that vehicle and with a fine tooth comb and After that, I was okay, you know, because like the first drill, they really didn't have much to say to me, because I was in the maintenance section. So there weren't any female mechanics in that section either, you know, because it only been open to females, I want to say three or four months. So throughout the entire battalion, there was probably like six of us, maybe. But there was only two in my firing battery. So, that had to
0: feel pretty good, though inspecting that that truck in front of them and accomplishing right. the task. You're
1: darn right. And I, like I said, I grew up, you know, you know, ranching, rodeoing type stuff. You know, uh, you know, my dad. You know, I have a my sister and I have a wonderful older sister, Rhonda. She and I were the workers because my dad didn't have any boys. So we hauled hay, we we cut hay, we worked cattle. We you know we did everything. That's required on a ranch type situation. And so, you know, we never had to ask anybody for help because our dad taught us and mom to be very independent and we could do just about anything. So it was, it, they didn't, they had no idea what they were getting into. And then when I could outrun all of them too, for the most part, because I was very athletic then, uh, that didn't go over real well either. I'll tell you, there was a couple of guys that were trying to beat me so bad and they were so frustrated because they could never beat me in our two mile run. <laughs> <laughs> Getting shown
0: up by the woman. That's, That's a-
1: right. I went in there and showed him up in some aspects. So,
0: This is Marching Orders. I'm with Angela Belts. Let's fast forward again, this time to 2005. You were in the Ohio Army National Guard now. Hurricane Katrina happened. You were deployed this time for a mission here at home. Take us through that experience, Angela, what you saw there, what your mission was, the lows, but also the highs, like people helping people.
1: So, like I said, the Guard is, is a very interesting organization, and Ohio happens to be one of the best. And, and I'm not saying that just because I was in it, but, you know, when their slogan was always there, always ready. And I believe it's still similar. I, like I said, I retired in 2008, so I don't know what their tagline is right now. But um, they're very, very uh, well-equipped, well-trained Um a lot of times when things are going down other states will ask us to help because our soldiers and airmen are amazing and i still believe that to this day but um so they mobilized uh the 73rd troop command and we had uh, general lee was our commander and so it was task force lee in the beginning uh, it then changed to task force buckeye once we got down there but we were on the ground i believe, in I want to say they had we had assets on the ground in 38 hours I believe and then we went like shortly thereafter so we went down to um Stennis International Airport right by Kiln in Kiln Mississippi and uh right by the Hancock County High School where Brett Favre went to school so that was kind of cool but we got down there and um all of a sudden states were just sending people there was active duty units coming in there was we had marines at one time we had marines some navy um we had air force attached we we ended up i I don't even know how many thousand people we ended up responsible for on top of the 900 guard that went down um army and air um at least i'm there's probably more than that i my numbers probably aren't right but it was pretty awesome because we assumed command and control of this huge group and um i was um Uh, one of the assistant personnel NCOs. So it was my job to go up to Camp Shelby, Mississippi, which is now a mobilization site, and check the, the units coming in. So we were establishing contact with them You know um getting them you know where they should be going and deploying them around you know um, Louisiana and Mississippi so it was really neat we met a lot of people it's funny I even saw people from my North Dakota unit there was a water distribute or water purification unit that got sent down and so I knew some of the people (laughs) that were in that unit and they're like what are you you know it's like I haven't seen you people and you know since 91 you know so it was kind of funny but um So we did that and then um, we had to uh, try to get all those folks home uh, before Rita came in. So as we are loading the last two planes, uh, the front end of Rita, Hurricane Rita is coming and it happened to be um, the battalion, my husband's battalion. and. We had some pretty cool contract air pilots because I don't know how they got those planes off the ground. There was like a little opening, like a two-minute opening, and they were able to take off and get them out of there. So that was pretty amazing. One of the more disturbing things is uh, when you go into a combat zone or into an area where you're carrying your weapon with you and they give you a basic load of ammunition. Um, you know, it's like a set amount of rounds. I thought it was 120. I don't know, maybe I'm old and I don't remember for sure. But, um, when I, we went to desert storm, that's understandable. But when you're in Mississippi and they give you a, a, you know, when, whenever you leave, you have to take, you know, ammunition with you because you just didn't know what was going to happen. You know, um, there were some people that were taking pot shots at military and police and they were trying to just either deliver water or secure areas to keep places from getting looted. Um, that was really kind of sad. Um, hearing some of the stories from um, our amazing 148 infantry, they are the ones that helped clear the Superdome. And um, and then. Um, also did recovery missions you know looking for survivors after that but when they came in you know and them telling us you know it was just it was chaotic you know in New Orleans and it's just sad you know because you think of us as a progressive country and yet when bad things happen you have people looting I mean pushing TVs you know you saw it on TV afterwards I saw it on TV you know they're pushing you know a flat screen TV in a shopping cart where are you going to go you're going through the water there's no electricity what are you going to do with this stuff so I think it just gives you a glimpse at the breakdown in society when um, there is no law and order and no respect for other people and it was just really really sad that was like the worst um, now, some of our units had a very good experience. Um, my husband's battalion, I believe, they were in Poplarville, Mississippi, and they were really nice to them. Like they would, you know, invite them to cookouts, and I mean, they they were very welcoming, and they were very appreciative of having the guard there. Um, but it was just definitely um, something I'll never forget. I'm glad we were there uh, to help, and we did a lot of good. I believe um, our soldiers and airmen and You know, the Marines that were attached to us, you know, um, they basically secured that whole bottom half of uh, Mississippi. So it was it was a really good experience for me.
0: I know a lot of the focus was on New Orleans. Of course, it's below sea level. And so a lot of the media attention was on New Orleans. And you really didn't hear a lot about what was going on in Mississippi, although we did see some coverage. Was the flooding, did the media coverage that was there, did it do it justice from what you could see?
1: there like you said there really wasn't a lot of media coverage so if um you can kind of find some now um but the the way that the water came in it it was like i don't think anybody had ever seen that happen before um One of the towns that we uh, helped with the communities was called Diamond Head. And it happened to be an airplane community, which I've never heard of one of those before. But these people, a lot of them had airplane hangers and they owned airplanes. And like their drive or the street is like a taxi way to get to their own little airstrip. And there was this one house and I'll never forget this. It was it was. Really, a tall house, but it had like a little crow's nest up on the top, and it was probably like something to look at the water. I, you know, I don't know, but there was, I think, six people. They stayed, and the rest of their house underneath was like gone, and they were up in that crow's nest when the water came in. And, you know, so the water was like 32 feet, I want to say, maybe higher, but it was, but they were standing in like knee deep water for like four hours before the water started to recede. And we talked to them, and know, they just looked so, they were in shock, you know, I mean, because, you know, everything, all their belongings are like anywhere from a mile to, you know, a mile and a half inland, you know, it's just spread out, you know, throughout the whole community. You know, you had boats that were at one point, you know, 30 some feet in the air with the water. And then when the water receded, they just planted in between the trees, you know, so it was, it was really, um. I, I can't even describe, <laughs> it just doesn't seem real. You know, how did that happen? You know, how did that much water come in? And um, the devastation was just unbelievable. But there was a lot of people helping each other. Um, I can remember one lady uh, that I helped, I was taking water over to her and you could tell she was in shock and she was looking and and real frantic. And I, and I said, I need you to drink some water. And she said, oh, I can't, I, I need to find my my orchids and I need to find my makeup I just want my makeup and I mean her house is gone like there's nothing there there's just a bunch of stuff so she was digging you know frantically looking and we ended up finding a medicine cabinet And the weirdest thing, like, we opened it up, and there was some lipstick and some mascara and, you know, some medicines. And she was so happy, and she asked me if I could take that to her pile. And she had this pile of stuff she'd been gathering, you know, all day, I guess. And so I picked it up, and I carried it over. It was just one of those little small medicine cabinets, and I put it with her pile, and then we found some of her orchids. She had apparently had a greenhouse and was raising orchids. And some of them were still alive, which is crazy because the salt water usually kills all the plants. And that's how you could tell how high the water was because the trees were all brown. But there were some orchids that were still alive ish, you know. So she was so happy. And I'm thinking, all of this woman's belongings are gone, you know, no pictures, no nothing. And she, all she wanted was, you know, her orchids and some makeup, you know. So it's just. I don't know. It to just be able ma- to
0: have anything, I guess, that belongs to her, that she could just say, this exactly. is mine, I get to keep it. Yeah.
1: Did anything survive, you know? And it was just, it was just weird. It, it, I always wondered what happened to that lady. And I, I always thought, you know, I would love to go down there and, you know, drive through Diamond Head and see if any of those people are still some of the same people, you know, that we helped that long ago, but I've never done it. So you
0: know, I was going to ask how long you end up staying there and if you ever did actually get to, uh go back?
1: I have not been back to Mississippi since. Uh, we were there 25 days.
0: Your tribe gave you an Indian name, Akisita. What does that mean, in what does it mean to you?
1: Well, actually, so Akisita is, is, means warrior um, in the so I don't want to use the word Sioux because we don't really use that word anymore, but you have different bands of the Sioux, of the great Sioux nation. Um, Sioux is a white word, I know per se, and it means snake, so it's not really a good thing, but um, we are part of the Dakota uh, band because there's Lakota, Dakota, Nakota. There's different um, clans, I want to say, sort of, kind of, if you want to refer to them that way, but we are of the Dakota band of, um, of, of the Sioux, great Sioux nation. Um, but Akasita means warrior, but the Indian names that I was honored with by my elders, um, one of which happened to be one of my cousins, uh, Miss Gloria Green, um, was, um, Tashunka Nakan, which means she rides her horse. And the other one is Peace Niwian, which means I am not afraid woman. And, um, it was really, really, amazing to um, earn those because um, I also at that time normally back then um, I was told and I'm not really sure if that still stands today but normally women don't get the eagle feather and the plume they would get the plume because the plume um, is the nurturing part of the eagle you know that keeps it warm and you know that you know the nurturing piece Um, For the bird, and then the feathers, you know, are for when they're hunting and gathering and, you know, and protecting. And so, but I got both. So I have them in a nice shadow box at my house, and it was definitely um, an honor and um, one I'm very, very proud of.
0: And you're not only an advocate, but you're actually also a role model for women in the military and particularly female veterans. You've described it as a passion. What are some of the things you do on that front, Angela?
1: I have been really lucky to um, come in contact with an amazing group of women, uh, the Ohio Women Veterans Advisory Committee. Um, I've known um, a lot of them since probably 2008, I want to say, is the first time I went to one of their conferences. Um, I was blessed to meet them and to come into contact with them, and then I started volunteering and Helping where I could, you know, with their conferences, uh, and then um, a year and a half ago, uh, I was actually elected chair for the group, and so I've been the chairperson for that group. Um, and we have a biennial Women Veterans Conference, and it, um, with under the leadership of the women before me, um, it's it grew to be one of the largest in the nation. Um, at its heyday, uh, you know, the um, the gals had. I think as many as 750 women veterans and we used to have it at the Aladdin Shrine Center um, up there off by Morse Road but unfortunately that got torn down so um, we held one at The Hilton there and then this last year in 2017 um, we had about 450 women uh, and we held it at the Ohio State University Student Union Um, we're also going to have one there again like I said we do it every two years and that will be August 10th of 2019 so um, we're hoping to open registration in March uh, during Women's History Month Uh, it's a wonderful day um, uh, celebrating women veterans uh, we've been fortunate to have this year. We had a uh, female, all female color guard from Newark High School. They have a JROTC uh, program out there, and it was all female uh, color guard for that. So it was nice to see these high school girls come in and meet some of our World War II veterans. Um, we have some of those that attend our conference um, the Korean War veterans, you know, the Vietnam veterans. And, you know, it's just really um, a blessing and an honor to be able to be in the presence of these women who led the way for the rest of us. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely involved in that community. Uh, I also just joined the Catholic War Veterans. Um, I wasn't really, didn't know too much about them, but I've joined that. Um, I also take part in the Ohio on the Ohio Executive Committee for the Hall of Fame, um, where I'm part of a group uh, that we read the nomination packets. This year, I believe there's 120 packages we had to read. And then um, through the committee, we vote on them and narrow it down to no more than 20 veterans that are inducted into the Ohio Veteran Hall of Fame. Um, So I'm involved with that as well. Uh, We'll be having the induction ceremony um, close to Veterans Day. And um, so I, you know, I definitely um, have a passion to find these women veterans, especially um, our trailblazers, because a lot of them were told they weren't veterans. Um, You'd be surprised to hear from our Korean and war veteran Vietnam veterans that they were told they had no benefits. Uh, They didn't know they weren't veterans. They were just females that were in the military. So um, that's been one of the hardest things. But now our struggle is um, reaching our Iraqi and Afghanistan veterans because a lot of them, um, it wasn't the most positive experience, but then there's other ones that it was. But they don't want to be seen as different. Um, so we need to figure out a way, but they're, they're a different generation. And like I said before when we were talking, um, you know anybody who joined after nine eleven you know they have to be part of the greatest generation we you know we refer to the World War two veterans as that, but these young men and women joined after nine eleven knowing that they were going somewhere it's not if but when um you know like I said before i'm very proud of our oldest son you know i'm proud of, proud of both of our sons, but our oldest son um followed in our footsteps in a sense he joined the active air force so he knows that it's not if, but when, um, I have a lot of my, um, best friends, you know, I have these four amazing women that are in my life and, um, one being my sister. And then my other three are my army sisters. And, you know, most of their children have served. And, um, it's, it's almost like a family thing with us. Um, on my mom's side, we go clear back to the cavalry, uh, days. Uh, one of my, my great, 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 my great, great grandfather, was actually a scout for the Army um, and um, is on a plaque at Fort Snelling, Minnesota, where um, he had walked from Devil's Lake, North Dakota, all the way to Minneapolis um, to let the cavalry know about the Great Sioux uprising that was happening, evading people who were trying to keep him from getting there. So, um, you know, we go clear back to every war on my, you know, on my mom's side for sure. Um, My dad's side, I recently have found out that, um, you know, we are eligible for the Daughters of the American Revolution because we go back to a patriot um, who was out of Pennsylvania. So I'm starting to get in some information about that. Um, My aunt Judy in, in Iowa, she's very, has always been very involved. So she's happy that I'm taking an interest in it because she has a lot of information to pass on. So. The military has definitely been a big part of my family's life. Um, My husband's family, uh, they're very much um, a military family as well. Uh, Both of his grandfathers served, uh, his grandfather on his mom's side, he was a POW. um, During World War II, he was captured at the Battle of the Bulge um, and spent uh, a long time over there. I don't remember how many months. Um, And then his brother served um, and it's now out and, and my husband's still in. So, And then now our son has joined. And we don't know about the other one yet. He hasn't really said. And, you know, we don't push that, you know, because you have to have the heart to serve. And that's something that, you know, you can serve your country in many ways. And for our family, it just happens to to be the military. You know, you can be the Peace Corps. You can, you know, be a county Um, a county worker you can work for the city you can be a teacher there's so many ways you can give back to your community where it it doesn't involve military service and you know we tell we told our kids that because like i said we don't want to push them because personally being a soldier a former soldier retired i don't want somebody next to me that doesn't really want to be there and that's just there for the college money because that's not that's not what we need in our military service
0: You'd point out the uh, the Newark Junior ROTC. My niece happens to be in that Junior ROTC at Norwich, by the way. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. I wonder
1: if she was one of the ones that was part of the color guard. Yeah,
0: she could have been. Her name's Peyton Peterson. I know she's uh, been in there. and She's part of the rifle unit, the the rifle team. I know she uh, does she really well in that. She
1: may have done. I'm going to have to look back. I, I believe we have a, a list of their names.
0: So every veteran that I've talked to describes the struggles of adjusting to civilian life well almost every veteran our last guest actually he said he he got out of the military and went straight to hawaii so uh (laughs) he adjusted okay he said although he actually was still in the military He, he continued on through 1987 i believe but after he left the war he went to hawaii so it was he he was okay with the adjustment there but you were relieved, you said, but the quiet was difficult to get used to. Were there some things like sirens, loud noises that would kick you into Mop 4? You had mentioned the sound of three horns honking.
1: Yeah. Um, so when we were over there, we were fortunate enough to have, um, we had our we had gotten some funding somehow, and um, we were able to purchase a couple of generators. So at one point we had, you know electricity per se and along with our wooden floors we were so happy to get those wooden floors in the tents because the sand is everywhere you know um but hearing a generator run all the time it's you get used to it you know and it's really loud but once you grow accustomed to it if you don't hear a generator something's kind of wrong and you're around people 24 7 you have no privacy. There's no peace and quiet. Um, there's vehicles working. There's some, there's just a lot of noise all the time. So when we came home and, um, went back to North Dakota and it was like, I couldn't sleep for like, it was hard to sleep because it was so quiet, you know, because you're, you're missing, the chaos and and you're not used to to being in a room by yourself you know you've spent the entire time we slept in tents the whole time we had a gp medium tent there was six of us females on one side and the other half was the supply side you know so and then our guys were in the other um tent but um and then just like things that would kind of startle you you know the horn honking you know if somebody honked a horn you're like oh my gosh you know where's my and you're like reaching for stuff um it's just it's just different because you're in, a absolute, you're in a controlled environment, but it's chaos at the same time. But then when you come home, it's weird to just be able to do what you want and you're like feeling like you need to ask permission or, you know, or make sure it was okay or make sure you had somebody with you because you're definitely the buddy system when you're females, for sure. Um, you don't ever really go anywhere by yourself or you shouldn't, um, you usually have a, have a battle buddy with you at all times. So just for safety purposes and, um, you know, males as well, cause there's a lot of other people, you know, um, in and out of those communities, that aren't necessarily, you know, military folks, too. So, you know, safety in numbers. And that's one thing, you know, that the military um, prides itself on. You know, you always have a battle buddy or a wingman in the Air Force for my son, uh, which I find very neat. So,
0: You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, you can't go home again. Uh, Thomas Wolfe's novel from 1940, that was the title. Do you get back to visit the reservation where you were raised? And if so, how different is it? Does it feel like home or is it something new to you?
1: Um, like I said, it, was, it wasn't that bad when I was growing up. Um, but unfortunately, I think that the casino, although it's brought employment to our tribe, um, I don't know that it's brought a lot of good with it either because of all the negative um, aspects that come with, you know, large amounts of money or you know the hope of winning that money um and it's really kind of sad because I do feel like our our reservation has improved in some ways but in other ways it's went backwards like it's not as safe as it was when I was growing up you know that when I was there I you know I last one of the times I was there uh, I want to say in 2012 I was there I was um, wanted to go for a walk. And my mom's like, well, you can't walk on the road anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, it's not safe. And I'm like, seriously? Like, how can that be this bad? And it's heartbreaking because I still, my parents still live there. And I have nieces and nephews that live there. and I And I love all my family that's there. But I don't go back very often because it's just it's kind of depressing to be honest. Um, but I'm very proud of all my family that's there and, um, and they're productive members of society. You know what I mean? They're not, you know, um, People have a tendency to have a stereotype about reservations. And, you know, they, you know, where's the where's the real Indians at or, you know, where's the you know, where's the teepees and where's the this and the feathers and all that. Um, One of my girlfriends worked at uh, Cavalry Square, which happens to be a renovated cavalry post that was um, from those days, that era. And they've, you know, they've been restoring it gradually. But it's, I think it's the North Dakota State Historical Society runs it and I believe it has, uh, you know, the National Register as well. But when we were in high school, I went to visit her one day and this busload of people from New York came and... It was these old crabby women with a lot of jewelry and they wanted to know where all the indians were and she's like well what do you mean and she said well where's the tepees? and where's the indians and where's the feathers and this is like in 1983 84 and she said well you drove right past the playground all those kids out there that and she goes no i want to see the real indians You know, and it was funny because when I went to basic training, I had a a girl who was um, from California and she wanted to know how I got to the airport. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, did you go like by covered wagon? Like, how did you get there? And I'm like, yeah, we took a horse and buggy to the airport. (laughs) Yeah, we totally did. You know, so it's still
0: 1880, (laughs) of course.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It's still (laughs) 1980. Yeah. You know, but it's just kind of interesting. But um, You know um, like I said I I love my family and friends back home and you know I try to get back as much as I can I actually just went back um, in October of last year for my 30-year high school reunion so that was a lot of fun I hadn't I hadn't been back to any reunions since that one so it was pretty neat to reconnect with some of the people um, and it's always good to see my parents and um, my family.
0: Angela last question and this is one I, I typically ask everyone but it's a it's a little different for you I guess. Finally, what advice would you give to veterans who are struggling to adapt and reacclimate to civilian life? And in particular, what advice would you give to female veterans who are coping not just with civilian life, but also some things they might have dealt with in active duty?
1: Um, fortunately, there are so many resources out there now. Um, there weren't as many uh, following the Iraq, the first part of Iraq. Um, And I don't... There weren't a whole lot after Desert Storm, and um, a lot of my fellow Desert Storm veterans are still struggling um, with residual issues uh, that no one really thought was true and you know and it was because of the chemicals and stuff so that some of them are still really struggling um you know several have died you know as a result of you know their exposure to whatever and um but they're now starting to acknowledge that and you know that they're trying to take care of of their issues um but like with Iraq, there wasn't a whole lot of support for them when they came home. I have a lot of really good friends um, that really struggled, you know, with that. And uh, the resources that are available now are pretty top-notch. There's there's a lot of uh, private resources as well if they feel they can't reach out to the government resources. Uh, but like the VA clinics, um, One Stride, you know, there's an awful lot of news out there about how bad the VA is and, there are some bad pockets, but there's also some really good. Um, one mandate that was put in place is that there's now women program managers uh, for each VA clinic. Um, we're very fortunate. Um, we have three within driving distance. You know, there's an, an amazing one, in Chillicothe, a very good friend of mine, Bonnie Owen. She's the women's program manager. We've got Stephanie Blade here in Columbus uh, at the Columbus VA running the women's program clinic. Um, and... My friend down in Dayton, and I'm really bad with names, but she does an amazing job down there as a women's program manager. And we do have women-only events, and that's one thing um, that my dear sisters who started this Women Veterans Advisory Committee had the foresight, you know, starting in 2007, to bring together women veterans so that they can have a community and reach out to each other. And like I said, my focus is, you know, primary, you know, I'm... support all veterans but i really really am trying to help find the, all these women veteran and veterans and put them in touch with each other because we get it you know you can sit in a room with a bunch of civilians and and i don't look down on civilians don't take it i don't mean in that way but you can always tell if someone was in the military I don't, it's kind of weird <laughs> it's like a club you know we're here in the club you know mm-hmm. but um we have a different way of thinking about things i think um we have um different ways of reacting to things. Um, I think the military develops a lot of really good leadership qualities, um, but it also develops the... Um, fear of asking for help, just like it does in any in corporate America. You know, you don't see too many you know executives asking for help. You know, if you know um, you know a crew leader, you know on a on a construction team, you know you you don't see a lot of weakness shown. You know, and the military is the same way. So it's really hard a lot of times for women to ask for help, uh, especially women, um, because you had to put on this front where I don't show emotion and I don't, you know. Need help? I don't ask for help. I'll do it myself. You know, or so. But there are so many resources out there, and you're never alone. Um, find a veteran to talk to. Um, we're everywhere, and we get it. And everyone has different experiences, and everyone's had different um, trials and tribulations that they've went through. But we can usually find something in common, some kind of common ground, and and just get a conversation going, and you'll be amazed at the knowledge that each one of us holds, and that's why we love our conference so much, because we get to bring everyone together and find out, hey, wow, I didn't know you were, you know, it's like, and you see people, and, you know, working at DFAS, you know, there's over 1,900 people in my building, and it was great being the chair for this last um, conference that we did, because, I met three veterans at work in my building that I didn't even know were veterans, mm-hmm. you know. But I've known them and I've worked with them. But we don't walk around with a badge saying "woman veteran," and it's kind of a hard, um, a hard line because we don't want to say, "Oh, look at us, look at us, we're women," but we need to be recognized with the same amount of respect and honor that other male veterans are looked at. Um, my husband and I, we laugh, we go out, you know, on veterans day, you know, to get a blessed meal that someone has, you know, decided to honor veterans with. And one time the guy is like, Oh, well, here's your veteran menu. And he's like, my husband's kind of funny. And he said, I'm not the veteran she is. And he is, but he just did that to make the guy uncomfortable. And he's like, oh, oh, I, what? Oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. I, he goes, actually, we need two, you know, two menus, you know. But, it's people like him who are um, making a difference, and you know um, other men that do acknowledge the contributions of women in the military. And like I said, my focus is really towards women. And like I said, I'll do what I can to help my you know my brothers in arms as well. But I really, really try. I'm trying to reach out and find women veterans. And um, if you wouldn't mind, I you know if you get on the Ohio Department of Veterans Services webpage. Um, not the va it's ohio department of veteran services there is a link for women veterans and if you get on our page you can look at some of our past conferences there's some video clips there's some pictures there's a list of speakers and um There's a lot of information out there, and and I would encourage any woman veteran to please take a moment and and get on our webpage and then be watching, you know, get registered for our email distribution list because, you know, hopefully in March we'll be able to open up registration for our amazing event we're going to have on August 10th, uh, the Ohio Women Veterans Conference, and it'll be at the Ohio State University uh, Student Union again. We want to fill it up. We could have 1,000 women in that place, and we want 1,000 women.
0: That website is dvs.ohio.gov. Angela Belts, thanks for joining us and thanks for your service.
1: Thank you so much for honoring veterans and for giving um, them a voice. Uh, it's very much appreciated. And like I said, the more veterans we can connect with other veterans, I think the better off we're going to be. And you know, just know that you're not not ever alone. You know, there's a huge brotherhood, sisterhood out there, and we're always there for each other, and they just need to reach out.
0: I enjoy doing it, and listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders, or let us know of a veteran you think should tell his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line, marching orders. And check us out at thisweeknews.com, or follow us on one of our many social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at this week news. That's at this week' news with Angela Belts, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of. Uh